All right, before we dive into this first verse in today's study, in today's passage, let me reread and reiterate the last verse that we just heard, because it is powerful. Verse 15 of John chapter 3 says, Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what's interesting about this passage is that this is the first time the Gospel of John mentions the phrase eternal life. In fact, whenever he uses the word eternal, it's only used to describe this kind of life. And when we understand what the Bible means by eternal life, it's not just quantitative. It's not just about its duration or its length. No, it's qualitative as well. It's about its power. It's about its height, its depth, its width. How many of us know that we can be alive and still be looking for life? Many of us have wanted more out of this life than just being alive. Where does that desire, where does that ache, where does that hole, that emptiness come from? As we come to the Gospel of John, specifically John 3 and John 4, we're going to be reminded of two approaches to find that life, to get more out of life than just being alive. The first approach is religion, and we're going to see it in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. The second approach is through, we're going to use a word called irreligion, let's call it um, self-seeking or pleasure, in John chapter 4 with the woman at the Samaritan well. In today's study, we're going to be reminded of and re-engage with Nicodemus. And Pastor Jim did such a great job teaching this passage last week. But we also want to keep in mind who Jesus is going to have a conversation with next week because both of them are approaches to life. Not only in the Gospel of John, not only with a religious man and a public uh, Woman, a woman that has a very bad public reputation, but also all of us throughout all of recorded history. This has always been humanity's attempt and humanity's approach to find life. Either we look for life in our morality, in our duty, which aren't bad things, or we look for life in pleasure and experience. And wherever we look for life, friends, we're also looking for identity. And what does that mean? Identity is more than just your name, right? Do we get that? Identity is more than just your address. Do we understand that? There's more to your self-worth than your net worth. No, where we look for life, we're also looking for identity. So that's why religious identity says this. You are what you do. You are your duties. Secular, self-seeking life says you are your desires. And we see both of this playing itself out all the time. You are what you do. You are your duties. Or you are what you feel and what you want and what you, you think you are. You are your desires. Is that the good news of Jesus Christ? Do either of those summarize why God has sent his son Jesus into the world? No. The world or the religious duty might say you are what you do. 
The secular identity might say you are what you feel and desire. Our gospel identity is this, friends. Who you are is defined by whose you are. You are your saviors. And this is something that both Nicodemus and the woman at the, at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, are going to have to hear. And what's going to be shocking as we study not only today's passage, but then as we get into John chapter 4 in a couple weeks, is that the woman at the well who has pursued pleasure, who has sought after her desires and her experiences, she has seen how empty and hollow it can be. She's had six husbands. She has a public reputation of being an adulteress. She's going out to the well during the day because she knows that no one else is there and she doesn't have to deal with the judgmental stares of her local townspeople. But here's what's amazing. She's going to hear about this life, this eternal life that Jesus can give and how it's going to quench her deepest thirsts. And then she hears it and she receives it. In fact, she becomes the first evangelist in the Gospel of John. But here it is, Nicodemus. In today's study, Nicodemus is going to try to wrestle, try to understand what it means to be born again. And he's not going to get it over and over again. Not only is he not going to understand it, but Jesus is going to say clearly, he's not willing to receive it, at least yet. So the irony is that while those who are religious claim to see, without Christ, those who are religious are the most blind. Blind leading the blind, as Jesus says. So where do we find ourselves? I'm guessing on a Sunday morning at 1130, there are some that can relate to the woman at the well We've been down that path over and over again. And we need to know that there's grace and hope for us. But I'm willing to guess there's probably some Nicodemuses in here too. Where we think that this message isn't for us. This message is the person sitting next to us. The person that we wish was here listening to this instead of us. Because why? In the end, we have become slowly and subtly self-righteous, not relying on Christ, but relying on self. And not only does it make us blind, it makes us deaf as well. This is why over and over again, Jesus is trying to communicate one of the basic, core, foundational truths of God's kingdom. He said it back in verse three. He said, I tell you the truth, truly, truly, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how is that possible? Verse 5, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born of spirit and water, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can a man enter into his mother's womb again? He doesn't understand it. He doesn't get it. But we'll see as Jesus not only uses an example of creation in wind, but then in scripture with the word, and he goes back to Moses, we'll see that this is less about an intellectual understanding. And friends, this is more about a spiritual resistance. 
It's about a heart problem for Nicodemus. He doesn't understand because he doesn't want to receive. The heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. And that's why being born again is so foundational. When Nicodemus approaches Jesus, he lays on him all kinds of pomp and circumstance. Nicodemus knows how to talk and engage with religious people and would-be prophets. So as he's about to pour out all of this praise upon Jesus, Jesus cuts through it all. And he goes right to the heart. You see, what religion is, friends, man-made, man-centered, man-powered religion, is it's attempted transformation from the outside in. Let me apply these principles, these practices, and let me do as good as I can, and hopefully that'll change, change me. That's not the good news. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying we have to be more honest about our own sin. And yes, Jesus is reminding Nicodemus of how holy our good God is. What, we're, what we need is not transformation from the outside in, but from the inside out. New life, new birth. And that's why Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And I know for many of us, perhaps we grew up in a different tradition. Perhaps we grew up Episcopalian or Catholic, and we would hear about those born-againers. Oh, those born, you knew a couple of them, right? Those born-againers, they are way too excited about Jesus. They need to switch to Christian decaf because they need to calm down. Don't quote me. The, just put the Bible down. Just please stop with the Bible. There's the Episcopalians, there's the Catholics, the Methodists, and then one of those sects, the really excited Christians, they're one of those born-againers. No, the truth is, Jesus said, to be Christian is to be born again. No qualifications. Nicodemus didn't understand this. He's a teacher, not only a teacher. Jesus is going to say, he's the teacher. And he didn't get this? Perhaps you've been sitting in a church for a long time. And you've never heard this before. Oh, man, I am excited, really excited to tell you how good the good news is. Nicodemus says here in verse 9, let's look at the Bible, shall we? All eyes on Scripture. He once again is trying to understand this, and Jesus is going to point out this is not just intellectual but spiritual. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be, speaking about being born again? In verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the definitive article the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive, what does it say? Our testimony. Very interesting. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Let's stop right there. So clearly we understand that Nicodemus is a man of stature. He's a man of influence. Jesus says he is not only one of the Pharisees. He's not only one of the men that sit on the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He describes him as the teacher. So if you saw Nicodemus today, he would have books. He would be called a professor. He would be called a doctor. He would be called his excellency. He would have a long robe. He would have a lot of people that talk about him. And Jesus is saying, you are not only a teacher, but the teacher, and you don't get this? 
this, this basic, fundamental, foundational truth that the prophet Ezekiel prophesied, promised, and foretold that when the kingdom of God would come, that God would change his people from the inside out, that God would take our heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh, that God would so work in our hearts that we would want to follow his law, that he has come, the kingdom has come to give life. Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. You see, he has ears, but he can't hear. He has eyes, but he can't see. Friends, can you envision this? I mean, literally, put yourself in Nicodemus' position. He is talking with Jesus in person. His eyes, his naked eyes, his physical eyes see Jesus, and what? He still doesn't see him. His ears, his physical ears hear the words of Jesus, and still what? He can't hear him. He's in the physical presence of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited, long-hoped-for Messiah of Israel and the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He's right there. He's in his presence. And what? He doesn't understand whose presence he's in. This is what makes the new life, new birth so important. That when we are born again, we are given not only a new heart and a fresh start, but we're given a renewed mind and new ways to not only see the world, but new ears to hear God's word. Nicodemus not only doesn't see it, but he doesn't accept it. Why? Well, Jesus uses this analogy. He doesn't say I, I, I. He says we, 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 and are. He says, well, we speak of what we know and what we have seen. So when he's saying we, I think he's talking about when you testify to something, when you claim to know something, you're speaking from what you see and what you know, you're speaking from your experience. But then he says, you do not accept or receive our testimony. Now that's powerful. It could be he's talking about the disciples, but it seems like this is a private conversation. So I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying, you're not receiving Nicodemus what Peter and James and John are saying. What is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? You're not receiving the testimony of the one that you've dedicated your entire life supposedly to serve. You're not receiving the testimony of the one who sent me from heaven. He's about to say it. The one who descended from heaven, the son of man who believes in him. Anyone who believes in him will know everlasting life. You're, you're, you're not accepting the testimony of Yahweh, of our father, and not only our God, but his word, the one who descended, the son of God, he is the revealer. And yes, as we will see, the one who ascends is the son of man. He is the sufferer, the suffering servant. He says, you do not receive our testimony, verse 12. If I told you earthly things, he's talking about wind and birth. He's not getting it. What if I told you heavenly things? Now listen, verse 13, all eyes in the Bible. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As if to say salvation has always been about Jesus Christ. No one has ascended into heaven without Jesus. No one ascended into heaven without the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So how are Old Testament believers, Old Testament saints, Old Testament people of God saved? Through Jesus Christ. The book of Romans tells this and explains this about Abraham. And says Abraham, who was not perfect, you can read his story, 
Abraham believed he had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed and trust in God, his mercy, his provision. And then God gives this sacrificial atonement system as a foreshadow of the one day where the Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world. It's always been about Christ. There's no one, the Bible says, Jesus says, Jesus says, there's no one that ascends to heaven without him. He'll later say in the Gospel of John, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Oh Lord, give us ears to hear. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. It's at this time where Jesus understands Nicodemus is not receiving or accepting his testimony, so he uses an Old Testament authority, the Old Testament authority, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the the first five books of the Bible, none other than Moses himself to communicate this truth. Let's look at these last two verses, verse 14 and verse 15. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness So the Son of Man, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus is doing, he's reminding Nicodemus of Numbers chapter 21. A very interesting story, a very fascinating story, a very powerful story about the same people that God delivered from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He brought them out through signs and wonders. He brought them out through miracles. He saved them from the tyranny of Pharaoh, and he brought them out to a land where they could worship him. Not only that, he didn't just save them, he's also providing for them. A pillar of fire to lead them, and supernatural manna from heaven. Supernatural bread from the sky for them to eat every single day of the week. How many of us would be amazed by that? How many of us would be in awe of that? In Numbers chapter 21, God's people get sick of that. They start complaining. They say to God and they say to Moses that we're sick of your loathsome bread. Mercy. Now, before we judge our friends, our forebearers, the people of God, Israel, how many of us have had similar prayers to God. We're blessed with a shirt on our back. We're blessed with the freedoms that we have in this country. We're blessed with decent health, family, friends. And what do we say to God? It's all loathsome to me. God, I'm sick of this Toyota Corolla. Clearly you don't love me because I'm not driving around that beautiful brand new Lexus yet. It's loathsome. God, clearly you don't love me because I'm not getting as much advancement in my career as the person next to me. God, clearly you don't care about me because I don't have the money that I believe I think that I'm due. We ever pray those prayers to God? Oh, we don't say it out loud. But those are gifts from heaven. Those are gifts from God. And then as we come to the table, church, as we come to the, the, the Lord's Supper at the end of this service and we break bread and we remember this beautiful image that Jesus used of his broken body on the cross, we could be angry at God because he's not giving us the stuff we want. And yes, even the bread of the Lord's Supper can be loathsome to us. 
just another burden, just another ritual, just another tradition. So what does God do? Many of us, if we need to be delivered from a politically correct God, you need to read the Old Testament more. Because you know what he does? He sends snakes. Snakes, serpents into the camp called fiery serpents. I was already afraid when you said serpents, right? I was already afraid when you said snakes. I hate snakes. Me and Indiana Jones. I can't stand the snakes. Fiery serpents that go into the camp. Not just scary because they're ugly, but they also have a bite. When they bite people, their venom infects them, and people are dying. People are dying. So Jesus is using this analogy for himself. So it's not too far to imagine that the snakes represent sin. And in the same way, Israel couldn't just ignore the snakes, right? You can't just ignore sin. You can't just pretend like it's not there. In the same way, Israel just couldn't educate people about the venom in the snakes. It's not enough to just educate people about the effects of sin. In the same way, they couldn't just kill the snakes. In our own strength, friends, I hope you hear me. In our own power, we cannot kill sin. Lord have mercy. No, sin cannot be educated away. It cannot be legislated away. It cannot be medicated away. We need to be saved. We need to be delivered. And that's what Israel learned. And that's what Nicodemus one day will learn. The story in Numbers 20 is that God brought deliverance by using the very emblem of their shame. He instructed Moses and said, Moses, get a big pole. And on top of that pole, put a big bronze serpent that looks like the same fiery serpents that are biting and stinging and affecting God's people. And lift up that pole. And anyone who looks upon that pole for hope, for healing, will be saved. And miraculously, they are. Almost all of them. Can you envision this? Some people who are infected by the venom, some people who are about to breathe their last breath, refuse to look up. Refuse to look up to God's only way of hope, of healing, of salvation. Once again, we look at that people, that generation, we think, why not look up? You have a cancer going through your veins. You have a problem that you cannot fix. Look for hope and healing. Look up at God's deliverance. What's worse, friends? What's worse? Not looking up at this bronze snake because of a snake bite or not looking up to the cross of Jesus Christ because of the cancer that will destroy us that is called sin. Sure enough, it's going to happen today. I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't. I pray that it doesn't. But there will be people even today as we conclude our service and as we proclaim the hope and the healing that the cross can bring, some of us refuse to look. Like Nicodemus, we refuse to hear, we refuse to see, we refuse to believe. You know what's interesting about Nicodemus' story? This is not the last time we're going to hear about him. You can turn to John 20 later on this afternoon when you go home. But Nicodemus partners with Joseph of Arimathea after Christ is lifted high on the cross and crucified. He is there, sacrificing his reputation 
and sacrificing from his own personal funds to bury Jesus Christ. How much can we read into this? We don't know. But I tend to think when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, I tend to think that he finally understood. This was always God's plan. In the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent, friends, God lifted up his son on a cross. In the same way the snake was the emblem of Israel's shame, the cross was the emblem of the Roman Empire's shame. Friends, if you were crucified, there was no tomorrow. There was no crucifixion and then life after that. It was brutal, it was horrific, it was shame-filled. No, before the cross was a shiny piece of jewelry on our neck or a tasty design on our Easter cakes, the cross proclaimed shame, defeat, and hopelessness. What does our God do? Our God takes that symbol, takes that dark day, and makes it the hope of the world, makes it the light of the world takes our shame, the cross, and makes it our hope. I heard a story, perhaps you heard about it too. The first two services heard about it, so we'll see. When I heard about this story, I couldn't resist but share it with you. It's a story of two young people swimming off the coast down in Florida. Two high school students, one named Tyler Smith and the other named Heather Brown. And they were swimming and they were Naive as far as two things. Naive as far as the power of the pull of the current that would bring them out into the ocean. But also naive as far as how strong they were. And perhaps we fall into that same trap. Perhaps we are naive as far as the undercurrent, the toe and the pull of sin, and we think we're strong enough to swim against it. These two young people were not. They were pulled out by themselves out into the ocean by themselves, and they treaded water for two hours, losing hope, thinking they were going to die. The young boy, Tyler Smith, a teenager, he actually confessed this. This was what he said to himself. He said, you can't swim anymore because both of your legs are cramped. It's hopeless. That's when this article from Fox News says, that's when he turned to prayer. I started to cry out to God, please send something Please send someone or some miracle to come save us because I still want to see my family again. The article goes on to say that's when it felt like a miracle occurred for these two teenagers as a white yacht emerged about 200 yards away. Heather Brown, the girl, said at some point it felt like it came out of nowhere. She waved a stick and she found at the waters, uh, at the water and the boat's captain, Eric Wagner, was able to spot them. After calling the Coast Guard, Eric Wagner's crew brought the two aboard to safety. He says this, Over all the wind, the waves, and the engines, we thought we heard a desperate scream. Exhausted and near the end, this young boy, Tyler Smith, told me he called out to, for God's help. Then we showed up. In the testimony, in the article, and also on TV, Tyler Smith says this, I know that my God saves. Amen? Amen. Do you know, want, want to know what the name of the boat was? The name of the boat was the Amen. True story. The name of the boat was the Amen. Whether we're talking about wind last week, 
whether we're talking about new birth this week or whether we even hear stories about God saving drowning teenagers at sea through a boat named Amen. Some of us in here feel like, perhaps we feel like we're drowning. Perhaps we're tired. Religion is exhausting. Trying to be that perfect person all the time, you might feel like you're out at sea and you're just trying to stay afloat. Would you look to Jesus? Would you look to the ark that is the cross? Would you fix your eyes and your gaze to heaven, the cross of Christ, to find hope and healing? Because Tyler Smith's testimony and I believe Nicodemus' testimony can be yours as well. He does save. He does save. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we continue in worship, as we think about what we heard in your word, As we meditate upon who you are and what your son has done for us, let us not take this moment lightly. Let us take it with all seriousness because it truly is a matter of life and death. The cancer of sin, the serpent's bite is real. God, we thank you that the long-promised Messiah, the promise you even gave Eve that someone from her lineage and line would rise up and destroy the head of that serpent Satan has come and he has won. He is our victory. So God, let us turn from ourselves and return to you. Let us trust not in our own ability, but let us trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. If you want to know Christ, The invitation is to believe. And by believing, you turn. By believing, you, we repent. We turn from sin and we come back to Christ. Pray this prayer with me, church, if you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you now. Heavenly Father, forgive me. Forgive me for my self-righteousness. Forgive me for my self-seeking. Please save me from my sin. I need you, Jesus. Fill me with your spirit and help me to follow you. I pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And church, friends, our Savior is coming again. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks, he broke bread, and said, This is my body given for you.
In the same way, Jesus also took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the remission of sin. Take this and drink it in remembrance of me. And whenever you eat,